everyone. Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am your host, Karen Lidsey, and this is podcast number 208. And in today's podcast, I sat down with Allie Shoes. She is the clinical director and owner of Peak Sports and Spine Physical Therapy in Washington State. She owns the clinic, enjoys leading and learning from her dynamic and passionate team, and believes in excellent customer service. And in today's episode, we sort of talk a little bit about that customer service and how physical therapy mindset needs to change from treating a patient for an episodic episode of care versus being the primary care PT, or as Erica Mello and I said in our mastermind group to our students, being a lifespan physical therapist, meaning that you are part of your patient's lifespan versus seeing them one time for an an ankle sprain and then saying, okay, see ya. Um, In this episode, we talk about what that means, how to be that primary care or lifespan physical therapist, why we should treat everyone like a direct access patient. So having that direct access mindset, we talk about that. Uh, how to incorporate patient education, how physical therapists can impact the growing Alzheimer's population. And Ali shares a very personal story uh, when it comes to Alzheimer's, uh, the benefits of exercise on the body and brain, which of course we all want and need. And I first saw Ali speak back at the Graham Sessions, which was in January at the Biltmore in Arizona. And she just had such a great presentation. And so I was very, very excited to have her on the podcast. So a big thank you to Allie for coming on. And also a big thank you to audible.com for sponsoring today's podcast. So if you want to get a free download in a free month, you can go to my affiliate link, which is audibletrial.com slash healthy, wealthy, smart. They have 180,000 different titles everything from fiction to nonfiction and and everything in between. So head on over to audibletrial.com slash healthy, wealthy, smart, get your free month and your free download. Try it out. I'm sure you'll love it. I love it. Anyway, a big thanks to Audible for sponsoring today's podcast. And uh, please enjoy this uh, wonderful conversation with physical therapist, Allie Shoes. So, Ali, welcome, and thank you for coming on to the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks, Karen. Thanks for having me. And, you know, like I said in the intro, I saw you speak at Graham Sessions earlier this year, back in January, and uh, this podcast is obviously going to ba- be based on what you said, and it kind of touched me in a very personal way, and we'll talk about that later. But first, uh, I'd love to have you talk a little bit about yourself and kind of what you do, where you are, and then we'll uh, start talking about the info that you shared during Graham sessions. Okay, sure. Um, So I am in private practice, uh, outpatient orthopedic sports medicine in Bellevue, Washington. So my clinic's called Peak Sports and Spine PT, and I have been practicing for, surprisingly, 34 years now, um, always in outpatient orthopedics. And I've gone the gamut from... um, working for a hospital organization where I ran their sports medicine clinic. I was in private practice with my husband where we owned a group of clinics in the early 90s um, when it looked like HMOs were entering the marketplace. We 
sold our practices and I went to work for a large national corporation for about seven years and ran 15 clinics or so and then went back into private practice again, which is where I am today. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of running PT clinics. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. yeah, it is. That's yeah. really Everything great. From one to 15, I think. Wow, wow. And was that, is that um, unusual? Was that unusual at the time for, for you to be running that many clinics, especially, you know, years ago? Um, Yeah, I think that was actually the beginning of that Mm. happening. I would say there were not as many large private practice organizations like there are today. Mm -hmm. And that's when the marketplace really exploded with the people like CalSouth and Physiotherapy Associates and some of the other really large players that came to the market and um, bought up a lot of clinics. So I really think that was kind of the beginning of that. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, mm-hmm. that's that's for another podcast, actually. I'd like to t- I'd like to talk more about that. We'll save that for another podcast. Right. Right. Um, this podcast is all about your talk at Graham Sessions, which was back in January. And if you don't know what Graham Sessions is, for anyone listening, go back and listen to my interview with Steve Anderson. Um, that was probably in early February. Um, because we talked all about Graham Sessions, how they came about, the history of it, and everything that we spoke about uh, in Graham Sessions in 2016. So if you if you missed that episode, go back and listen to that, and then listen to this one again, and it'll kind of connect the dots for you a little bit more. Um, so, Ali, one of the things in your talk that really, well, a couple of things stuck with me. The, the one thing was that we need to take responsibility for being primary care physical therapists. So can you kind of define what that means? Sure. I mean, for me, Karen, that's something that I have felt, I think, the majority of my career. And what I mean by that is that we need to look at our patients as a whole person and really think about how we manage their care beyond a single episode, which is more the standard for physical therapists. I think when we treat our patients, they walk in the door, we have to look at where are they coming from, what are they managing a a chronic condition, is this a one-time episode, what are their goals for, what are really their goals for their, their musculoskeletal health over the course of their lifetime, not just today and not just for the next four weeks, but how can we really help them stay healthy and play more of a role in and really in disease prevention, and that disease prevention could be everything from not letting that rotator cuff tear develop spontaneously in a 65-year-old male, as well as how do we deal with chronic diseases like diabetes and, and Alzheimer's, which we're going to talk about later, mm-hmm. um, and, and really not look at people as um, a case to be discharged. So that's, that's probably one of my biggest complaints is that therapists have this very standard role of of seeing patients you know, twice a week for four weeks or six weeks, and at the end of that time, you're done, rather than really thinking about what is the best way to schedule a patient to most effectively deal with this problem and to make sure that it's dealt well with, which might be that I'm going to see them, maybe I will see them twice a week for a few weeks, but then they're doing better and they can go off on their own and come back and see me again in two weeks, and maybe they're 80% better, but they're improving, so how about if I have you come back in a month, or you're an athlete that 
you're just not quite at 100%, but you're going to go back to your sport anyway, well, then maybe I should see you back in four weeks, six weeks, six months, and make sure that that ankle sprain did ultimately fully heal, and you haven't developed knee and hip problems. So it's, it's a little bit more of a model of dentists that we should mm-hmm. be seeing our patients in an ongoing preventive role, but it's also that when they come in the door, what do they need from me and what are they going home to, and am I paying attention to that and helping them navigate that? And so from a practical standpoint, because I know I'll, I'll sort of play devil's advocate here because I know okay. there's going to be people who are like, well, but insurance companies just want to know range of motion and strength and pain. And if if we're discharging a patient and then they have to come back, then we have to go through all of the eval again and we have to submit to insurance again. And so how does this fit into that model? Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely true. I think that the insurance company makes this difficult and some are easier to deal with than others. And I think, one, trying to communicate with insurance companies yourself or through a network that you might belong to to help them understand that this model of prevention, one, is more effective. I think there's lots of research out there now that shows that when physical therapists see a patient, you actually save a lot of downstream money. For, and, for example, there's one insurance company that we deal with that tends to give you X number of visits over a limited period of time. So when that time ends, you have to call up again and ask to extend it. So calling them and saying, look, I don't want 12 visits in six weeks. How about if I take eight visits or 10 visits over six months? And because that's what I want with this particular patient. That's what's going to work best for them. If you show them that I'm not asking for the 12 visits plus I want six more, or maybe I want that 12, and then I want one or two more over the course of the next six months to help keep them healthy. It's a conversation that we have to have. And again, kind of looking at paperwork as to how can I best set this up knowing I want my patient to come back in six months. I don't, some of the folks, I don't do a whole initial eval again. I don't ever close their case. So I'm not doing an initial eval again. I'm doing maybe a reevaluation when they come back in. Um, because I'm seeing them as a continuation of that same thing I was seeing them for before. So I'm not saying it's easy and can be done um, with every case, but I think that that communication needs to happen with the insurance company. It also has to happen with the patient. If we start telling our patients, this is what I think is best for you, and your insurance gives you X amount of visits per year, X amount of dollars, and you're going to go beyond that or... Um, again, when I see you back in six months, it's going to be a hassle, but this is what is best for you, and here's why. Here's what I think it's going to do for you. You get that buy-in from the patient, and let them be the advocate with their insurance company. Some of them are going to choose to self-pay in that instance, especially if you make it affordable on a cash pay basis and help them see that this is actually going to save you money in the long run. So many of our patients now have such high deductibles that they're paying especially relatively healthy patients, they're paying for their own care anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't, they don't get any insurance money until they spent 2000 or $4,000. So rather than in our own minds deciding, look, you only get X amount of visits or dollars, so I'm just going to stop treating you, let's at least have a conversation with our patients, tell them what we think would be best for them, and let them decide if they want to come back or not. Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense. And to me, that really takes the role as that primary care physical therapist a little mo- bit more seriously 
because now we're looking at a, instead of just, like you said, a limited plan of care, we're looking at more of a, a yearly, but you know, more lifespan right. plan of care of, of this is what, in my professional opinion, again, using our reasoning skills and, you know, those those skills that we're we're supposed to be learning in PT school, clinical reasoning skills, and saying, hey, listen, I don't need to follow the twice a week for six weeks or every patient needs to come in three times a week for six weeks, but rather using your clinical reasoning skills based on what you're seeing from the patient and making a more appropriate plan of care. Exactly, exactly. And that's, I mean, that's the nail on the head really is that you hit the nail on the head that not scheduling patients by rote but mm-hmm. scheduling them based on what they need because you did evaluate the patient and you evaluated their situation and are able to set that appropriate program up for them. And I think then we can also show insurance companies that we're not just using 12 visits because that's what we, quote, get, right. that we're really applying the appropriate amount of time to that patient over a course of time because that's what they need. Right, and you would think insurance companies would be happy because you're not over overutilizing Correct. physical therapy Correct. services, but instead you're using your clinical reasoning skills and now we're a doctoring profession, right? Sometimes we see patients in a lot of states direct access and you know, you're just using those skills that you've learned to make appropriate medical calls. Correct. Right. Yes. And I think, and again, I think that we should be treating all of our patients like the direct access patients, whether they are or not. Mm-hmm. That concept of direct access, I think, raised this conversation to a higher level because we do see them walk in the door. And so we should be looking at lots of things that might be going on with that patient because we might be the only person seeing them. But we should take that same model no matter how they come through our door because we don't know that the person who saw them when they sent them on to us, it may have been a, you know, a very harried primary care physician who mm-hmm. really has little to no background in musculoskeletal medicine and, oh, your back hurts, let's send you to a physical therapist, which is right. perfectly appropriate. But right. then we need to treat that patient just like they walked in the door fresh. Yeah, and I think that's important. And I would be remiss if... I think Rich Severin would be upset if I didn't say that, of course, if we're looking at, we're seeing all of our patients like direct access patients and treating the patient as a whole, it also means taking their vital signs. Right, right, which, right. Which many people forget to do. Yes, and you had that in an earlier podcast, and yeah. I thought that was actually great information because it is something that I have overlooked doing is making uh, sure that we are looking at that. I do listen, it when guilty. the patient I'm raises guilty. a question. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because I've had a patient I've sent to an emergency room with a heart arrhythmia that ended up having a procedure done the very next day before wow. he flew back to South America, where he was on a mission trip for six months. So, I mean, in his in his case, it was potentially life saving, and it was just something I happened to notice while he was there. But it wasn't isn't something that I do automatically, and, right. and it was a young guy, and we really should. I right? Yeah, because you know, if you're having these patients walk in with low back pain. Um, or or any other comorbidities, right? Diabetes, maybe they have a history of high blood pressure, and you're not taking your blood pressure and your heart rate. It's it could be um, it could be a problem in the long run, uh, especially when, like you said, even for younger people, if you're designing a workout program or something like that for them, right. where you're saying, okay, I'm going to see you for a couple times, and I'll see you again in six weeks or four weeks, 
it would be good to educate that patient on how to be on that program effectively based yeah, on everything absolutely. you're saying. Right. And, right. and I, that leads me kind of into the next question is if you're, so instead of doing the traditional model of twice a week for six weeks or what have you, is it sounds to me like there's a lot more patient education that needs to happen. So how do you include that into your plan of care? Because you know everyone's like, oh, I don't have time to do patient education. I have to do X, Y, and Z. So how do you incorporate that in if you, as a primary care PT? So I, I, I guess I think education is so much a part of what we are doing the whole time we're treating a patient that I, I don't buy that argument that I don't have time for education. I think we're educating the patient the entire time that we're with us. So we have conversations with our patients for that 30 or 45 or 60 minutes that we're with them. So uh, to me, it, it's pretty much incorporated as we're moving through the process. So maybe you don't get all of it in on that first visit, but as you're gathering information, I give patients feedback. So if they're saying something to me um, about their history, they, that you know, maybe their diet's bad or maybe they're, they have these other conditions going on, then I'm going to answer them immediately and say how that might be impacting this and how we maybe need to address that. And, or they live alone. So then the next question is, well, how then are you going to you know, get to physical therapy or, or they're a single mom and they work and they've got kids. And so the conversation comes up, where do you fit exercise in and how can we make this work best for you? And so I think that education is throughout the course of the time that you're in the clinic. And then certainly when I am setting up their plan, I don't, that first visit, I may not have their whole plan in mind. We're going to do that. Okay, I'm going to see you twice a week. Schedule for two weeks because I want to get a good handle on what's going on with you, what your response is to the exercises that I'm going to give you, and to the treatment I'm doing. I want to know if it's working or not working. If it's working fantastic, then I'm hoping after two, three, four visits, we can cut down how many times a week I'm seeing you, um, and then we'll go from there. So I don't necessarily map out an entire plan of care because I really want to see how they manage with what I'm doing with them up front. But they know then that that's going to decide what we're going to do later. And then as we approach that time of I don't need to see you as often is when I start having that conversation of what I would like to see long-term. I always let them know when, if this episode is truly done, I always let them know, look, you're now going to continue to manage this. If this gets worse, I do not want you to let it get bad before you come back to see me. Use the skills and techniques I give you today. If you've dropped off the bandwagon of exercise, get back on it. This is where you're going to start. And if your symptoms persist longer than X amount of time, then you need to come back and see me right away so we can get this in the bud. Or you know, think about coming back to see me next year so we can make sure that you are still healthy and you know, moving forward in the direction that you want. I've started using that dentist model to talk to some of my patients if mm -hmm. they're interested in, you know, coming back in a year. So, so it's just an ongoing conversation I have. I don't find that I need to set specific time aside. It's just incorporated. If I'm mobilizing your ankle, I'm talking to you about some of these things at the same time. Yeah, and I love the fact that you're so proactive about managing your patient's expectations from day one. This is what we're going to do. And and, and managing that right through towards the end. And thank you for giving those examples on what you say to the patient. I think a lot of people will be uh, using that as a template now. But I think the way that you 
manage expectations is so important and sometimes um, overlooked. So yeah. thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. And, and now, you know, you mentioned earlier when we were talking about chronic diseases, diabetes and Alzheimer's, and part of your talk at Graham Sessions was about Alzheimer's. So can you talk a little bit about your interest in that population? Sure. So my um, mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's about five years ago, four or five years ago. And um, it had been after, you know, we had noticed some cognitive decline in mom. It took a little while to get an accurate diagnosis, but she finally did get one. And she was the caretaker for my father who had physical disabilities limitations, but his mind was just sharp as a tack. So they were actually a very good team together. And, um, until my father passed away about two, a little over two years ago. And um, at that point, we realized when dad died that mom was not able to take care of herself independently. She had been pretty traumatized by his loss, and I think more so than average because of the cognitive decline that had taken place. So for the next six months, we um, had my mom live with my siblings and I, mostly one of my sisters took care of her and the rest of us did kind of respite care while we figured out what we were going to do about mom's living situation. And we, I just learned so much about Alzheimer's in that period of time and even more uh, going forward from that. And we learned about caregivers and living situations and um, how to deal with memory loss in someone that you love, which is more you figuring out what you need to do and how to respond to that person in an appropriate way that um, doesn't distress them. We learned mm -hmm. about, you know, an angry parent who doesn't want her kids to tell her what to do or how to live or, you know, how to bank and um, how to manage all of that. And during that time, what related more directly for me as a physical therapist is that mom had low back pain that became worse. She'd always been a walker and an exerciser. And because her back hurt, she was really limiting her walking. And so I got her in to see, um, to go to physical therapy in our hometown. And it wasn't it did not go the way I would have expected it to. And, and that's kind of where I linked my primary care PT thought processes and what all of us need to um, recognize is coming down the pike. There's a number of people that are going to have Alzheimer's and dementia and what our role is in both helping to treat and manage those people and improve their quality of life as well as, as, have a preventative role in that and, and so it's go ahead oh no go ahead go ahead keep going sorry well so you know in mom's story I guess in terms of the physical therapist was that she she went to this clinic and rather than see a single physical therapist that I would have considered her primary care PT she really saw a different person almost every time she went mm. and they, didn't, they did very limited hands-on care. They did some, but not very much, which that had been very helpful for getting mom out of pain. They did have her exercise every time she went, which is great because she needed exercise. But they mostly had her walk on a treadmill, which walking was a thing that bothered her back. So mm. it, her back would hurt when she would go. So she complained to me and said she didn't know why she was going because it wasn't helping. And so I called the clinic I had the receptionist had to work with me going through mom's uh, chart notes to try to figure out who her primary therapist would be. 
uh, and picked one who I think had seen her a few more times than the others. And so I did get to speak to this uh, physical therapist. And to her credit, she was great to talk to on the phone. She was um, really willing to listen to my concerns and responded to them. So she did um, assign a single physical therapist to mom, and they did change her care. So she did improve. And but they did the you know the classic, saw her twice a week for five or six weeks, and then she was discharged. They the other concern I had was that their therapist did not know mom had Alzheimer's. She didn't recognize the cognitive decline mom was going through, which was you know moderate at that time. It mm-hmm. wasn't new. So, for example, mom certainly could not remember how to do her exercises on her own. There's no way she remembered her exercises between visits, which is a, you know, very, very significant red flag that someone has a dementia issue. And so, yet despite that, I informed her of that. When mom was discharged, there was no conversation with her um, home care provider who brought her every time. They didn't bring this person back and show her the exercises or have her learn how to help mom do them at home. They didn't call me to talk about what mom's home situation was. They didn't um, have mom come back. Let's come back in a month and see how you're doing. They didn't rec- They didn't recommend a community-based exercise program. There's a walking program in our town that wasn't recommended. There's a, a gym that wasn't recommended. So there was just zero follow-up. The treatment was done, mom felt better, discharged. Right. And very very so, insular, right? Very insular, very much pace dependent. Mm-hmm. And and by it was based on, okay, your Medicare money has run out, which it hadn't even run out, but that was, you know, you've had your twelve visits, you're done. And um, I mean, even under the with mom's comorbidities and having Alzheimer's and, and um, being able to quote receive care for maintenance if you're preventing that person from going backwards, all of that would have worked with mom. Mm-hmm. So she mm-hmm. could have even continued to go back on an intermittent basis to physical therapy, which would have been great for her. Um, so that incident really helped me recognize that physical therapists don't really deal as far as they know. They are dealing with people with Alzheimer's, but they don't really realize that they're dealing with people with Alzheimer's. And that we aren't functioning in that primary care role because we know that exercise can help people with Alzheimer's disease, help people with cognitive decline in many, many, many ways. And we need to be applying that to this, this particular type of patient, but also recognizing that moms is one example, but there's all kinds of examples of treating our patients in that insular case-dependent right. way. Well, it's, it's sort of treating the back pain patient instead of treating the patient who's the person who's come to you with back pain. Correct. You know, big, big, big difference Mm -hmm. there. Big difference. Big difference. Yeah, exactly. And especially someone with cognitive decline, like you said, exercise can help with Alzheimer's and can, well, it can help with a lot of things. You know, a lot of studies have come out showing the benefits of exercise to brain function. But can you talk to that a little bit more as to how it would help because it doesn't reverse Alzheimer's. So I don't want no. people to get that impression right. that all you it have to do is, is exercise. So can you talk right. a little bit more to that? So it's, it's an area that is, con- you know, ongoing study is going on. And there is no definitive study that says, gosh, if you exercise, you will prevent Alzheimer's. But there are a lot of studies that are showing exercise can delay the onset of Alzheimer's. 
there is a study um, that was that's been done. There's actually a couple studies that have been done with people who have the genetic, they have the gene that assures they're going to, um, or they're more likely to develop Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. And in in one study, the group that exercised at a very very high level significantly reduced the onset of Alzheimer's. Now, the study would have to run for quite a long time to know if you actually prevented it from ever happening. So that is completely not known if you can prevent it from happening. Mm -hmm. But in some studies, it's been delayed up to four and a half years, which was the length of the study. Yeah, that's one longitudinal needed study, right? That's got to be like a 30-year-long study eventually. Correct, right, right. But it it has shown a significant... um, improvement in delaying the onset of Alzheimer's with exercise. So we know that. We, in other studies, they've shown that people who have the, again, the genetic risk, high genetic risk for Alzheimer's, who exercised at a high level, which meant brisk walking or swimming, as an example, three times a week or more, they measured their hippocampus size. And in the group with a high activity level, there was no reduction in their hippocampus over time. This is in an elderly population. In the other group who had a high risk of developing onset of developing an onset of Alzheimer's, but had a low level of exercise, which meant you know more slow walking twice a week or another exercise like that, um, had a three percent loss in their hippocampus over eighteen months. And the hippocampus is the area of the brain that's associated with learning and memory. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of study going on now with the hippocampus and how um, its deterioration relates to Alzheimer's and and uh, dementia. So that's a pretty kind of specific sure. study that's just shown really, really good results. And but good, another good more promise. Fun- Good promise. And another more functional study was done on people in a um, residential living facility that had Alzheimer's and showed that when they implemented an exercise program for that group, their functional ability improved, their ability to walk, their ability to get out of a chair, which those kinds of things help keep people independent and, and relying less on others for their care so they can hopefully kind of slow down that progression towards mm-hmm. higher and higher and higher level of care over a longer period of time, which saves substantial money. Substantial. And hopefully with some of these people we started early enough might keep them in their home. Mm-hmm. It's, they've, they've shown a reduction in cognitive decline in people who exercise regularly. So again, I look at people like my mom, gosh, if we could just slow that decline down, keep her in her home longer, keep her interacting with us longer, everybody benefits yeah, emotionally huge. and financially. Huge. It's huge. It's yeah, huge. huge. It's a huge thing. And and physical therapists were so uniquely qualified for this. You know what I mean? And and the question that becomes why are we not stepping into this role? And really taking charge of this space, especially for Alzheimer's patients, saying, hey, listen, this is the study. This is what what we've seen, and this is what we can do. So it could be, like you said, starting a community-based class, going into a a care home, a nursing home. I don't know whatever they call them these days. um, and, And implementing some of this, I think, is really important. And the other thing, I think is that a lot of people think because people are elderly that they can't do more vigorous exercise. Right. 
rates. And, and actually, I, I think, you know, there's that. They're elderly, so they can't exercise. And once someone starts up the cognitive decline, we, um, we kind of think, well, then there's nothing to do. This person has it, – it's almost like it's a we lost put cause. them aside. It's a lost cause, mm-hmm. which is not the case at all. You know, I look mm-hmm. at my mom, and, oh, my gosh, there's just so much joy in her life. And she goes dancing. We play pool. We play pool under her rules. She gets to hit any ball she uh-huh. wants. It's <laughs> a good rule. It's a good and, rule to have. She, it is a good rule to have, and she wins every time. And it's, it's awesome. Um, but there's just so much that you can do with people who have cognitive decline and and let them continue to participate, help them continue to participate in life. Um, and the other side is that prevention role is what I've really jumped on the bandwagon about is exercising my, pa- excuse me, educating my patients who are in their 40s because we know that Alzheimer's is something that comes on over a long period of time, decades, just like heart disease can take decades to show up. Um, who we really want to be getting at is our 40-year-old population saying, look, this is what exercise does for your brain. Not only does it help your body, but it helps your brain health. And there's a correlation, not a causation, but a correlation between the risk factors associated with cardiovascular disease Mm -hmm. and the risk factors associated with dementia and Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's possible it's because of blood flow, but it's possible it's because of the bad lipids that get laid down in the um, blood system, bloodstream. But again, we don't really know that piece yet, but we do know there is a correlation. So all the things that help reduce the risk factors for cardiovascular disease like diabetes and hypertension, you know, high blood pressure, um, having high cholesterol, especially when it's the low density lipids, all those things are reduced by exercise and diet. So getting 40 year olds to say, this is not only good for your heart, it's good for your head, it's good for your brain. Mm -hmm. So let's help you kind of change some of your lifestyle habits now, this is why you should exercise forever, not just because you're, I don't want your back to hurt. I don't want you to develop Alzheimer's like you're watching your mom or your grandma or dad or brother go through. And that really resonates with people. People don't want their brain to deteriorate. No, no they do not. And again, right. that, of course not. That ties back into what we said initially as taking responsibility of being a primary care PT. So if you have that 40 or 50 or 60 or 70 year old who maybe doesn't have any signs of cognitive decline and they're coming in like you said for back pain or knee pain or elbow pain or what have you neck pain it's that now is the time to especially as those patients get a little bit older to say you know I'm glad that you came to physical therapy we're going to work on this now but I want you to let's come back maybe every six months so we can tweak your program Let's right. let's chart your progress. Let's right. give you, you know, a thought that comes to my head is wouldn't it be great if we gave all of our patients like, a, I don't know, like a, an Excel spreadsheet where they can keep all of their information and maybe send us that at the end of a month and see where they're at and then how can we tweak that program? That's a great idea. You yeah, know what I mean? Exactly. Do like mm-hmm. a run chart of mm-hmm. some sort. Right. Um, and, right. and just to see how many times you're getting to the gym, what are you doing, how are you feeling, uh, having, like you said, it's all about the follow-up. Right, right. And educate them what, you know, what kind of exercise is best for them. And mm-hmm. if they aren't an exerciser, how do we help that happen? And, you know, maybe for you it's better to be in a group activity or to go to a gym or another person would be best using a tape at home and understand the difference between weightlifting versus cardio. 
Um, I mean, there's just so much education that can go on. And, and with diet, which we haven't touched on, I think mm-hmm. we're not, I'm not a dietitian, but I certainly have read a lot about what kind of diet, again, has been associated or linked with delaying the onset of Alzheimer's and keeping your brain healthier. So we've, we've published that diet on a single-page handout. On the bottom of it, it also has a little bit about exercise. But this particular handout is, is mostly about diet, and it lists the food you should eat and the food you shouldn't eat That's and easy. what that risk is. And we have it as a handout. Have it on your website. Just let people download it. Or let them walk out the door with it. Everybody you see could take that with them. Um, and those are just the things, again, some of the things that, that, again, as a primary care PT, we need to be doing for our folks. And it, it's easy. Yeah, absolutely. Mike Eisenhart would be happy to hear you say that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think these are changes that, are, that aren't costly. They're not too much cost or time for the PT because, like you said, right. you can educate while you're treating. And, and the more you can hammer that home and then have resources available – it just, it seems like a pretty easy thing to do. Right. So right. where do you, what do you think the whole, what do you think the holdup is? What do you think the barriers are and, and how can they be knocked down a little bit? Well, I think the first barrier is the physical therapist, him or herself. We have to recognize our own role as a primary care physical therapist. I, this word prescription needs to be removed from our vocabulary. I hate it when I hear someone say, did you bring, in my office, I don't, I should never hear anyone say to a patient, did you bring your prescription uh-huh. or what does your prescription say? Because that makes it sound like we've been, again, that here's a patient, my prescription for them is that you see them twice a week for five weeks, do X, Y, Z, and they're done. Well, where did our brain and knowledge and skill level come into that? I, am, I get referrals. So physicians refer patients to me because they want my judgment and decision-making and skill set to determine what's best for that patient. So we need to see ourselves as a consultant, that we are a specialist in the healthcare continuum and we consult with our patients to provide that musculoskeletal piece for them. So the, the biggest barrier to me is the physical therapist has to see their role differently than what we do today. Yeah. Have a mind, have um, a big mindset shift. Yeah. A big and I think, mindset do you shift. feel like new graduates coming out of school have that mindset? Uh, no, I don't. And I, I'm a little disappointed by that because I mm-hmm. do think new grads come out so well educated and very well prepared. Well prepared. And you know, some of the young people we met at the Graham session, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. their motivation and their innovation and their ideas as to how to deliver healthcare is really different from some of ours who've been in the practice a long time. I think they have a ton to offer, but I do still feel like they do not come to the clinic prepared to recognize their management role with the mm. patient. And if I were to teach one course across the country, it would be how to be a primary care physical therapist. Do it. I think, I think we need it. I think therapists need to really change how they look at their role. Um, so that's the biggest barrier. And the second biggest barrier is the, you know, then we have to be willing to educate our patients to tell our patients, look, this is how I want to, I want to, to treat you and work with you over the course of your, your life. And gosh, it would be so much better when, when you have that little tweak, that little thing, that's when I want to see you. I want to see you before it's the big thing. I want to see you when it's little things so we can manage it and move on from there. Um, and then it's that whole insurance piece. I think part of that is recognizing that 
we aren't beholden to insurance companies, we're beholden to our patients. And, you know, you can't be stupid. Realistically, patients have to be able to afford their care. So communicating with insurance companies, trying to change their mindset, not that we want more physical therapy, we want to do it in a better way that keeps them healthier and really reduces those downstream costs and use the research that's already out there to show that. And then trust our patients to make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. You know, let them know what we think is best for them and and trust them to make those decisions if we give them the information. Yeah, absolutely. And I think those are four really great points that I hope everyone uh, takes to heart. So it's changing the mindset of the physical therapist, willingness to educate our patient, communicate with the insurance company on how we can be more efficient with our care and not just have a session because it's there. Um, it was, you know, it was approved, so let's just do it. It's crazy. Right. Um, right. And finally, really put the trust in our patients and the locus of control into our patients because if you educate them properly and you motivate them sufficiently and you're enthusiastic about what you're doing and what you're saying, they're gonna, they're gonna, they're more likely to to take that and run with it. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, um, we're going to kind of wrap things up in a few minutes, but, um, is there anything that I missed from your Graham sessions talk? I think we hit it, right? Did I miss anything? I think we hit it. You know, the one thing I'd like, I'd like to say is, is only to help people wrap their heads around the enormity of this issue is kind of the statistics. Yes. Yes. Let's talk. Yes. Is it, you know, in 2015, 5.3 million Americans were living with Alzheimer's disease, and all of them will die from it because there is no cure. That number is expected to go to over 7 million by 2025, which is only nine years away, and to um, over 13 million by 2050 if we don't change the course of the disease before that. And the cost of caring for those people with Alzheimer's last year, Alzheimer's and dementia, was $226 billion. That's with a B. With a B, with a B. Mm -hmm. And that number is expected to grow to over um, $1 trillion by 2050, which is unaffordable. It's not even sustainable. And that doesn't even include all the free care that's done by people who care for their own loved ones in their homes. Um, And that globally, that number is is supposed to be 135 million by 2050. So it's it's this enormous, enormous number of people are headed our way with this disease unless we change the course of it. And for those who want more information, the Alzheimer's organization is the number one leading organization in the world dealing with both care and support for people with Alzheimer's and their caregivers, as well as the largest private funder of Alzheimer's research, and it's ALZ.org. Super great organization for just all kinds of the latest research and a 24-7 hotline for anyone who has a question about someone that they are trying to, that they're living with or supporting, and they, they just have questions about what to do, what do you do when mom says, no, I'm managing my bank account, you can't do it for me, you know, to how do I find caregivers to just just any question you might have. They're just an an awesome organization. Yeah, I I support that organization personally. Um, And uh, along with friends of mine, we always make sure that we, they're one of the organizations that's on our support list, whether it be going to galas or donating money or time or whatever. 
because um, Alzheimer's, like you, is personal to me. My grandmother had Alzheimer's, died of Alzheimer's. Um, and so it is a very challenging, uh, challenging diagnosis. But, um, and like you said, the enormity of it is hard to wrap your head around. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, but if the goal of physical therapy is to transform society, right? Right, absolutely. Then this is a great way to do that, along with caregivers, physicians, aides, nurses, families, and the patient themselves. So really team effort. Has absolutely. to be. Has to be. Right, absolutely. Absolutely is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Allie, thank you so much. This was a really great talk. Um, and I know I will be definitely passing this along to members of my family. Um, and if someone wants to get in touch with you, uh, how can they do that? Where can we find you? So you can contact me through my website, uh, peaksportsandspinept.com. I'm on Twitter mm -hmm. uh, under ptally1 or my name, Allie Schuess, A-L-I. You can find that either place. Um, those are probably two best places. I'm on Facebook, but but the uh, Twitter and my uh, website are the best places to find me. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and and coming on. I really appreciate it. It was it was great. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks a lot, Karen. Sure. And everyone else, thanks for listening. I know you've learned a lot on this one. Um, have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.